Welcome to the weekly podcast of Trinity Life Church. We are a local church that gathers in downtown Toronto on Sundays and all throughout our city during the week. Now our mission is to help people discover their identity and destiny in Christ so we can influence our city, our country, and our world. If you're looking for a place to call home, we'd love to have you. Our services are Sunday from 10.30 to noon at Jarvis Collegiate. Enjoy this week's podcast. Let me start out with asking a question. How was your 2016? So thumbs up, thumbs down. Okay. Wow. Okay. I guess I got some kind of like, you know, the uh, Joaquin Phoenix kind of like that thing. Okay. Um, this morning, I, I want to talk about... Um, I want to talk about courage for the new year, and not just courage as in bravery and uh, confidence, but a type of courage that actually cooperates with God to do more for the future. So the question is, do you want God to do more in 2016? Like, do we as a community want God to do more this year than he's done last year? Answers? Yes? No? Yeah, you're okay with, okay, yes, yeah, yeah, yes, of course, right? So um, I want us to, when I say more, I want us to keep in mind that I'm not talking, God's not a slot machine, so it's not like God's going to, it's not like we pull something down and he's going to give us excessive amounts of one thing, you know, like guy options or girl options or job options or money options. It's not that necessarily that kind of more that I'm talking about, but it's, it's, it's not the more that has to do with stuff, it's the more that has to do with meeting expectations. And what I mean by that is that it's kind of like God's desire and our desires coming together more this year. It's like God's actions and our actions flowing greater uh, more together. It's more, uh, more is where we find ourselves becoming more comfortable in our God-given uniqueness. It's where we find ourselves living with great purpose and clarity. More feels like, and I'm not a surfer, but after talking to Mike and Adam, I think it feels this way. More feels like the guy who gets on the wave for the first time and he's finally on his balance. Like, you're like, okay, I'm good. I like this, right? So that's the more that I'm talking about. More is like what we'll see in a minute where Jonathan is willing to go against the odds, not because he knows the what, when, where, or how questions, but Jonathan is pretty darn sure he knows the why question to life. And there's so much freedom and passion when you live your life knowing why. And this is what I have in mind when I believe that God is going to do more this year and not less. But the question is, do you want more? Because with more, it takes courage. And hoping for 2017, uh, we can't ignore what's happened in 2016. As a matter of fact, in order to move forward, it's very important that we process the events of this past year, the lows and the highs, and you process it not just the way that you saw it or the way that you experienced it, but you process the lows and the highs through God the Father's heart. It's kind of like... Um, you know, when I grew up, I thought my dad was always unfair because I thought he never wanted us to have fun. But as an adult, you look back, you have some perspective, and you realize that most of what dad did was preparing me to become an adult. And we need to get to that point uh, in our part about 2016, especially those of us who have lost something or who had hurt or you um, missed out on something. Because the way that you remember 2016 can filter and can almost even dictate the decisions and the actions that you'll make in 2017. How you view yesterday has a direct impact on how you act tomorrow. 
2016 understood the wrong way, for some of you may lead to a lot of fear. But 2016 understood the right way will lead to obedience. And so I want to um, quickly, before we jump into the passage that uh, was read this morning, I want to look at another passage real quick to kind of provide a quick thought to give us perspective on 2017 before we move forward with our, our topic for today. And this comes from Hebrews chapter 12, verse 26 through 27. And the Hebrew writer writes this, that at that time, his, which is God's voice, shook the earth. But now he has promised, yet, yet once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, and the author's making a commentary, this phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, and that is, things that have been made, fabricated, manufactured. Why? In order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. God's voice is shaking up anything that isn't permanent in your life. The picture here is God blowing, and it's shaking up anything that's not nailed to the ground. In 2016, God blew in your life, shaking up things that were manufactured, fabricated, veneer, calloused. He did that to remove those things. For some of us, it hurt. For some of us, loss hurt. But what we often call loss and hurt, God calls the removal of things that are shaken. Why does he do that? In order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. So here's the thought. What was lost in 2016 was probably never meant for you to carry into 2017. Breathe. Wasn't meant for you to carry into this year. He shook it up for a reason. If it was a genuine loss, it's probably because God needed you to let go of something. He just needed you to let go of it. If it was a temporary loss, like I lost my mom this past year, it was, I consider that a temporary loss, it's because God is redeeming it for more to come. So the question this morning is, how will I respond when God gives me divine opportunities in 2017? How will you respond when God throws you something uh, that comes your way this year, how will you respond? So I want to talk about two kinds of responses this morning. And the first response is Saul's response. What was Saul's response to divine opportunity? Now, the passage that we read this morning, Jonathan's the main character, but his story is really just an extension of his father's story, uh, who is King Saul. In order to understand Jonathan's courage, we have to understand Saul's discourage meant. Because Saul was a very complicated man, and he was given a very complicated assignment because 3,000 years ago, he became a rookie king to a rookie nation. So he was the first king of Israel. And up until then, Israel was kind of up and coming. It was kind of this unknown factor in the world, kind of like Canada. I mean, it was kind of, you know, I mean, it's been de- Canada was designated the number one place to travel in 2017, by the way, by New York Times. So Interesting. Up and coming, right? So that was Israel's reputation. Um, It was God's design to use an underdog like Israel to light a match for other nations to see him. That was God's plan. Israel's match was the Ten Commandments. It was, it was called the Ark of the Covenant. It was encased in this, this container, but it, in it held God's law, God's commandments. That was the match. That was the light. So as a matter of fact, the Philistine nations, they were an example 
of what it meant to be a nation that didn't have light. So it didn't mean that Israel was good and the other nations were bad, because at times you see that Israel was very bad. But it was the fact that the leaders of Israel had a light, the match, and the other nations didn't. So the other nations worshiped deities that promoted injustice, oppression as a way of life. As a matter of fact, these ways of life included uh, women and child sacrifices. But on the other hand, Israel had a God that was just, merciful, and forgiving. So the Philistines, uh, you know, there's still a topic of modern discussion. I wouldn't expect you to know this, but last year they uncovered a mass Philistine gravesite in Eshkelon. Um, and so here's a picture of that uh, gravesite right there. 150 bodies, as far as they can tell. The first one ever of its kind. And so these, um, the, the carbon dating of these bones go back to 3,000 years to the time of Saul and Jonathan. It's an incredible find. But I just want to show you this picture because I wanted you to be clear on the kind of people that Saul and Jonathan were dealing with. That is such a great task. And so um, there's a quote from the National Geographic back in July describing the Philistines. And this is um, what they said about the Philistines. Many researchers also tie the presence of the Philistines to the exploits of the Sea Peoples, a mysterious confederation of tribes that appears to have wreaked havoc across the eastern Mediterranean at the end of the late Bronze Age in the 13th and 12th centuries, which would be the, around the time of King Saul and Jonathan. So I want you to see that the kinds of people that Saul and Jonathan were staring in the face of every day, these were havoc-wreaking people. And so John, uh, Saul and Jonathan, they had to ask themselves, do we give in to our fear and let them take over? This is the question that they have to ask themselves. So from the very get-go, God's plan is being threatened. And so I no Israel. If Israel is demolished like from the get-go. Rookie king, rookie nation. If it's demolished from the get-go, no Israel, no Jesus. That's what's at stake. So it appears that Philistines, what we read earlier, the Philistines 10, it appears that they're the threat to God's plan. But what we actually discover in this passage is that the bigger threat to God's plan isn't Philistines as much as it is King Saul himself. We didn't read this, but in chapter 13, it explains that Saul kept staring at the scary impossibility called the Philistines. Every one of us, you've had Philistines in your life, metaphorically speaking. He just kept staring at this impossibility called the Philistines until it drained away all of his courage. He took his eyes off of God, he took his eyes off of the mission, and he obsessed over the strength of the Philistines. He obsessed over the size of the problem. He just kept staring at it until all the energy and courage out of his body left him. And not only did he think this way, but he also led this way. And let me make an observation that when you lead in fear, the people you lead will live in fear. You're thinking, well, I'm not a leader. I'm just, you know, I just have kids. Well, you're a leader. You influence somebody. When you lead in fear, the people that you're leading, they eventually live in fear. And that's exactly what happened to the Israelites under Saul's leadership. It says this in chapter 13, verse 6 and 7. When the men of Israel saw that they were in trouble, for the people were hard-pressed, the people hid themselves in caves. This is such a funny scene. So they jumped in caves and in holes and rocks. And it's almost like cartoonish. They jumped in jars called cisterns. And some Hebrews crossed uh, uh, the fords of the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. Like, they just left. They, they hightailed out of there. Saul was at Gilgal, 
and all the people followed him in trembling. So Saul's fear meant that he lost a lot of people on his team that day. And the ones that stuck around were just as afraid as he was. See, Saul wasn't a great spiritual leader. He was a cognitive leader. A a spiritual leader leads because they feel the Spirit leading them. They listen to the voice of God. And so when you, it doesn't matter if you're in a church setting, in a business setting, in a family setting. When you lead because you know the Spirit is leading you and you're hearing the voice of God, then you are a spiritual leader. A cognitive leader leads through emotions and their estimation of their own resources. Saul was a cognitive leader. So he saw the situation and he knew he couldn't possibly win. And so he panicked. And when he panicked, his army panicked. So it went down, his army went down from 3,000 to 600. And not because the Philistines were strong, by the way. They didn't leave because the Philistines were strong. They left because Saul multiplied fear onto his team. In fact, uh, this is kind of comedic. We didn't read this earlier, but we kept uh, reading. Er- uh, some of his army actually, they steal the weapons and they join the Philistines. <laughs> so they're like, those dudes are winning. We're going over there. All right. Kind of like uh, Kevin Durant. So he's like, we're going over there. So um, uh, <laughs> we'll edit that. Uh, so at this point, uh, what else could Paul do? He does the unmanageable. Like, the, the last thing that you should, that you should never do this as a leader, but he does this, is he takes his team, and on the day of battle, he hides in a cave. On the day of battle, he hides in a cave. That was his plan. When God gave him the opportunity to be the light to the nations, Saul says, uh, no, this way. <laughs> that was Saul's response. I thought to myself, have I ever went into hiding when God gave me a divine opportunity? Have you ever responded that way? God gave you an opportunity. It was something that was like, man, it may not have been massive, but it was an opportunity. It was a person. It was a, it was a, a position. It was a, a chance to do something. And you're just like, God, oh, no, I just want to hide. See, I think Saul's response is very natural. It's a very natural response. Left to our own confidence, this is how we would respond to any situation that seems impossible, right? Like, nobody likes to fight. Nobody likes to to lose. So when you're facing the impossibility, retreat. That's a very natural response. And as broken human beings, Saul's response is very normal. But when God says, press on, when God says, move forward, when God says, don't retreat, But your response is the normal response of hiding in a cave. What is a normal response is also a sinful response. And that was Saul's response. Hide, avoid, fear. So I want to challenge us uh, before the rest of this year happens. I want to challenge you as individuals and us as a church that before the rest of the year happens, when, because they're coming, when the difficult assignments happen this year, you're going to want to stare the Philistine in the face. But I want, to, I want us to make a decision today that instead of just staring the Philistine in the face, I want us to join God in staring down, staring down the fear inside of us, the tendency to want to retreat, to hide in a cave. 
When facing impossibility, you're going to want to regroup and re-strategize. That's the, that's, the, that's the nice way of saying, let's go to the cave. Let's regroup, re-strategize, go to the cave, let's figure out this Philistine, right? That's, that's kind of how we rationalize. But you will face in 2017 opportunities and things that you just can't strategize around. You can't. And the more you try to strategize, the more anxiety and the more fear that you're going to have. So what do you do? You have to choose today three things. Choose today three things. Number one, the mighty presence of God is already with you. If Saul could have just remembered that, that God's with me, if he just could remember that. Number two is that the truth of what God has already spoken over you. You have to remember that. Remember who you are. You're a son or a daughter of the living God. Remember, anchor yourself in that truth. And number three, the greater mission. You have to remember the greater mission God's called you to. It's not about just the task or just the responsibility, but there's a bigger picture that God's called you to be a part of. And if Saul remembered those things, he might have persevered and pushed forward. Modern thinking says that courage comes from within, and all that you need to do is remove the obstacles around you. Like, you got it inside of you. You got this, man. You got this, right? Um, Elsa says, just let it go, and just, you know, let it, you know. Taylor Swift, she says, you know, I'll shake it off, shake it off, shake it away. And so the theology behind that is that you got it inside of you. There's just obstacles in your way. All you got to do is push them aside and you do your thing. That's the modern day theology of courage. But biblical courage is different because it doesn't come from you. If you think it comes from you, eventually you'll end up like Saul because you'll realize that the Philistine is much bigger than you. The courage that cooperates with God to do more in the world comes from the power of God, the promises of God, and the purposes of God. It's the power of God, the promises of God, the purpose of God. That's what, Saul, that's what Saul lacked, but that's what Jonathan had. So that was Saul's response. He decided to stay in the cave when the opportunity came. What was Jonathan's response to divine opportunity? A lot of you are going to love Jonathan. Like I'm thinking, as I was writing this, I was like, uh, Adam, our worship pastor, I was like, Adam's going to love Jonathan because this, like, this is your personality type, uh, Adam. Because uh, he's not the kind of guy who sits in a cave day after day letting his enemy grow stronger. This is not Jonathan. He doesn't focus on the size of the problem because he's laser focused on the power and the promise and the purpose of God. Because to Jonathan, God is way bigger than the Philistine army. And this is where he lives in his mind. This is where he makes his actions, his, his decisions from. So one morning, as we read earlier in chapter 14, after being tired of the cave life, aren't you tired of the cave life, by the way? If you, I mean, you can, you can only Netflix so much. Like, I've watched almost every music documentary on Netflix right now, and I have to ask myself, why, I've been, why am I hiding in the cave some days? Aren't you tired of the cave life? Jonathan was tired of the cave life. He realized that his dad wasn't going to do anything, and so he looked to his sidekick, and he said this. He says, come, let us go over to the Philistine garrison on the other side. So he says, it's time. Let's row. Undock the boat. We're going. Jonathan had a holy initiative, a holy unction. This is different from human ambition. Saul had human ambition, but he had it in the wrong way, not Jonathan. Jonathan wasn't seeking status. He wasn't seeking power. He wasn't seeking a name. This happens even with Christians, but not with Jonathan. His ambition was more humble than any of that. 
So actually, later you see that in his relationship with David, this is a side note, um, David became the next king. Jonathan would have been the rightful king, but Jan- uh, David is anointed the next king. And there's nothing in Jonathan's body where he's jealous that his friend David is going to be the next king when rightfully it should be his throne. Because he's not about that. Jonathan simply knew that Israel had a calling, and they could not fulfill the calling if they stayed in the cave. That's my prayer for us this year, is that God give our church, God give you a holy unction to know this, that the call that we have on our life is so big that it can't be fulfilled by living in a cave. You got to come out this year. You got to step out of the cave. What's your cave? What are you hiding in? I'm praying, kick us out, Lord. Kick us out of here. Get us out of this cave. People with holy unction put together right purpose and right action. They read the situation. They know why they're going to do it. They know what the right action is, and they do it. Live with the conviction that God is in your soul and, he's, and, and sees the right opportunity to take action. Jonathan's word, uh, his phrase, come let us go, uh, it seems very simple. Like, hey, come let us go. It seems very simple. But it's actually the result of Jonathan having already weighed the consequences of staying and going. So after he has weighed the consequences of staying and going, he says, let us go. Saul says stay, Jonathan says go. They were in the same exact situation, but Jonathan had a different outlook. He didn't see the outcome as succeed or fail. And for some of us, we are in the cave because we think that the only outcomes are success or failure. That wasn't Jonathan's perception on the situation. Jonathan's perception on the situation was obey or disobey. Destiny lived or destiny denied. That was how he looked at the situation. Verse 6, Jonathan gives us his theology for decision-making. Let's read that together. What is, how did he come up with this decision? So he says, come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. And if you're nervous about that term, uncircumcised, it means exactly what you think it means. Uh, it may be that the Lord will work for us. It may be that the Lord will work for us. It could be. God may. God, God may do this. For nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. Jonathan knows there's no guarantees. He's not 100% sure of the outcome. And if you've ever needed 100% certainty before you did something that God called you to do, you're not looking for a relationship with God. You're looking for a crystal ball. And Christianity doesn't provide crystal balls. That's not what faith is about. More than a sure thing, Christianity points to a sure person. If God's calling you to do something this year in your job, in your relationships, in your ministry, don't use the lack of certainty as an excuse not to act. You're like, well, I only have 99% of the information. (laughs) That's more than most people have. Rule of thumb, this is not biblical, this is rule of thumb. I'm thinking if you're at 75%, you've got a lot of information to make a decision on. All right. Like, yeah, she meets 75% of your criteria. Dude, that's a go. (laughs) 
Um, lack of certainty can't be an excuse for why you aren't taking action. <sighs> um, sorry, single people. <laughs> uh, take action quickly based on what you already know. Uh, Jonathan knows that they're outnumbered. He knows this. He knows the, the, he knows the situation. He's not naive. Um, but the phrase, it may be that the Lord will work. It may be that the Lord will work. It may be that the Lord will work. That's the phrase that's key to understanding his courage. The phrase isn't a lack of faith. It's not a Hail Mary. It's not cross my fingers, maybe God will show up. That's not what he's saying here. It may be that the Lord will work shows us that Jonathan already thought through Saul's stay decision, but he concludes, I still say we go. I still say we do it because I still think God's going to do something. Weapons or no weapons, we got to go. This isn't an arrogance or him being naive. He isn't saying that I'm better than my dad or I've got what it takes. That's not what he's saying. He's he's humble. That's not what he's saying because his his courage is reliant on a relationship with God. It's not reliant on a result, you see? It may be, it may be, it may be that God would work for us. That's a posture. That's a posture of someone who is 100% surrendered to God, detached from results or outcome. It may be that God would work for us. So if you work, if you live this way, it doesn't matter if it works out because you're content because you obeyed. But if it does work out, you're content because you obeyed. Because obedience is tied to relationship and not results. God is not your boss. He's much more than your boss. But more than that, he's your father. So Jonathan is saying, he's saying, I know we don't have what it takes. And I, I, want, I want to deposit this thought into you. This is the thought that I want to deposit from Jonathan's life into you. Because he is saying, like you are probably saying at times, I don't have what it takes. He is saying that. But he's also saying, but I know we have to go. Because if we stay any longer in this cave, we might not see God move. God has given you assignments this year, and you will need to rely on his spirit for this kind of courage. God's assignment for you, no matter what size it is, listen to me, no matter what role, what size, how significant you think it is, if God gave it to you, you should never treat it as small. Because God's intentions are always great. And when he's handed you something, and it may seem like, yeah, 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 it's beneath you, your skill sets are much higher than this. Your experience level merits more responsibility than this. God's not, God's not uh, being condescending to you because in his mind, God has never assigned anybody anything that he didn't think that it wasn't loaded with purpose and he didn't calculate intentionality into that assignment. And so when he gives it to you, never treat it as if it was small. I love the armor bearer's response to Jonathan in verse six, or sorry, verse seven. He says this, you gotta love this guy. Like everybody needs this guy in their life. The armor bearer, his sidekick, says to him, uh, do all that is in your heart. Do as you wish. Behold, I am with you, heart and soul. So elegant. 
My inner city of Detroit paraphrasing would have said, word, I got your back, dog. <laughs> I'm down. The last phrase, I am with you heart and soul. The literal translation says that I am with you as your own heart. I'm with you as your own heart. Like we share the same heart. Your decision resonates with me. Your courage resounds in me. You know anyone like that? Like they just, oh, they're just like, oh, dude, that was such a good idea. Like I'm, I'm so down for that. The armor bearer doesn't even have a sword. I mean, we didn't read this, but in verse 13, you realize that at this point in, verse, in chapter 13, nobody has a sword in this game except for Saul and Jonathan. So this dude doesn't even have a sword. So his odds are worse than Jonathan's. But he's like, I'm down. <laughs> Jonathan's conviction summoned something inside of him. It resounded so clearly that he was like, man, I, I got to go with you. I'm down, man. Let's, let's do it. It was like he was waiting for somebody to strike a chord to wake up the warrior that was inside of him. He had been waiting for his leader to lead. And I've made an observation about life. That most people don't own up to their God-given assignment until they are around other people with biblical courage. Most people will not awaken up to their assignment from God unless they are around other people who have biblical courage. That when you are okay being around fearful, half-hearted, distracted people, you will be okay wasting assignments. But when you are around biblically courageous people, you come alive to your purpose. And when we, when you, you and I give a Jonathan-like response to an assignment this year, just watch the people around you wake up. Just watch. When you step out in courage this year, man, I almost want to say I, I guarantee you that other people around you are going to wake up to their destiny. Several years ago, Lynn and I, we led a young lady to the Lord, and she came from a non-Christian background. So her parents were very adamant about her uh, not getting baptized. Uh, but she came to the conclusion on her own that she wanted to let her family and her friends know that she was a believer in Christ. So she decided to get baptized. And the night before she got baptized, she gave us a call. And she said, my mom uh, is threatening me uh, that if I get baptized tomorrow, she'll kick me out of the house and disown me. So it was a very hard conversation to have with her. And so in my mind, I'm thinking, well, maybe it's not that big of a deal. God knows that you're genuinely a follower of him. You know, don't rock the boat with your family. That's what I thought. But in my heart, I just knew that, man, she needed to trust God and she needed to move forward with this decision that God was going to take care of her. So it was at that point where we said to her, okay, if you decide to get baptized tomorrow, we will uh, let you move in with us. And we'll, we'll share this burden with you. We'll, we'll suffer the consequences with you. And so it was almost like there was something in that that just inspired her. So the next morning, uh, she got up and we baptized her. And it was, it was an awesome, awesome feeling, awesome celebration. She went home that afternoon and her mom said absolutely nothing to her the rest of the day. So that was that. And then a month later, her mom went through some great tragedy. She lost somebody. And um, she, says, hey, she says to this young lady, hey, can you, can you call your church to come pray for me? And so we had a chance to, some ladies from our church, they went over to her house and they prayed for her. And just a few short years later, this young lady, she led her younger sister to Christ and baptized her two years ago, and last week we saw her 
come back from her first mission trip to Thailand. And it just made me think that most people don't own up to their God-given assignment until they're around other people with biblical courage. Let's be that this year. Man, let's, let's be that this year. Who are you going to be that for this year? Who are you going to be around where your courage is going to let out this sound that's just going to vibrate with them and it's going to wake them up? Let's, church, let's be that this year. This is why you need community. You need to be around those who are intentional about pressing forward in the purposes of God to wake you up to what God has planned for you. The end of the story is actually uh, pretty remarkable because um, it gives a bigger picture of what's happening. Uh, Jonathan, his armor bearer, uh, uh, and his armor bird, they approach the Philistine garrison and they're being taunted by them. Basically, they're saying, we're going to teach you a lesson. Like, I, uh, I kind of snickered at that line where it said, um, come up here, we want to show you a thing. It's kind of like they got their fists wound up. <laughs> they're like, hey, come up here, guys, we want to show you something. And so that's, they're kind of taunting them in that way. So the two climb up to the top of the mountain and in a matter of minutes, it seems, 20 Philistines are struck dead. Now, the Philistines probably thought that this was an ambush, and so when they saw those 20 people die, it caused a panic in the camp. And that's such a, I don't know, I just think that's a cool phrase. There's a panic in the camp. Maybe because I like panic at the disco, but, but there's a panic at the camp. And so, um, but it was, it was so awesome because 20 people died, and then all of a sudden you see this flurry of thousands of people like, oh no, what do we do, what do we do? The fear that Saul felt towards the Philistines, now the Philistines are feeling towards God. You see what happens when you stick it out? There's a reversal. And Jonathan was right. Nothing can hinder the Lord from saving, whether by many or by few. And it proves a biblical point that biblical courage, biblical courage, not self-induced courage, but biblical courage cooperates with God. Because the moment that the Philistine camp was in panic, like that moment, I don't know if you caught this at the end of chapter, uh, verse 15, um, an earthquake happens. There's a panic and then there's an earthquake. Uh, and I don't know if this is theologically sound or not, but I'm just throwing this out there. Uh, when God calls us to obedience, even if it means climbing a mountain to face an impossible enemy, God will not spare anything to create victory for the future, even if it means literally shaking the earth. Jonathan did his part. It was very, almost insignificant. 20 out of thousands of people was very insignificant. But it was that act of courage that God says, now my part. You did your part, now my part. And he shakes the earth. The Philistines aren't destroyed, by the way. If you're curious, you can read the rest of the Bible and they continue to live, actually. Uh, they actually survive until the Assyrians and the Babylonians come in and take over everybody. And at that point, the Philistines are destroyed. But the point of Jonathan's courage isn't the defeat of the Philistines uh, because the, the drama continues on after chapter 14. But the point of Jonathan's courage is actually found in verse 22. What happens when everybody sees what's going on with Jonathan and the armor bearer? It says that likewise, when the men of Israel who had hidden themselves, these were the dudes that when they were with Saul, Saul was so scared that they left. They crossed the river. 
They joined the Philistines. These were the, the 2,400 people, maybe more, who left 600 people shaken in their boots. But when they saw Jonathan and the armor bearer arise to the occasion, live out in mission, living up to their destiny, they came out of hiding themselves, and they too followed hard after them in battle. Jonathan's courage to cooperate with God summoned those who were hiding to come out. Courage releases other people of their fear. They come out of hiding. It summons those of us who fear defeat to re-enlist in the mission. Israel gets his army back. Jonathan didn't defeat an enemy that day. He simply reminded Israel they are a people of mission and destiny. Your acts of courage this year will summon others to their mission. When you act courageous this year in cooperation with God, you will summon people to mission. They, they won't care how well you articulate the mission. They won't care how well you've strategized the mission. But when they see your courage and your intentionality and your unflinching, uncompromising determination to move forward, that will summon them to mission as well. And that was the point of Jonathan's act of courage. He didn't defeat an enemy. He summoned God's people to their mission. I want to conclude with this. The New Testament, um, it gives, um, the New Testament, the Gospels, it gives us a, another story of another man who was humble, he was a leader, uh, and he wrestled with God just as much as any man in the Old Testament had to wrestle with God. And at the end of wrestling, he obeyed. And he courageously climbed a mountain just to face an impossible enemy. Jonathan's life is a shadow and is a picture and a pointer to Jesus. When Jesus climbed Mount Golgotha, he knew the enemy of death was waiting for him at the top. And like Jonathan, Jesus was not preoccupied with his own death. Because he knew God's people's destiny was at stake. He knew that if he didn't step up in an act of courage, that that would compromise the destiny of God's people. And so when Jesus was crucified on the cross, theologically, what that means, uh, what it means for us is that he died for the saws of the world. He died for all, all of us chicken people, you and me. He died for those of us who made excuses to not obey because we just didn't have what it takes. He died for those of us who have heard the prompting and you know, you've heard the arguments and still you insist on not giving your life over to God. He died for the songs of the world, for people like you and me. And he died not just to, to release the songs of the world, but he died to give the songs a chance to become Jonathan's. And so when it talks about Jesus resurrecting from the dead, that's almost as if in that there's the power of God to transform any one of us like Saul to become, become like Jonathan's. That's what his resurrection means, that you too can live a victorious, courageous life on mission. And so more accurately though, more accurately than being a Saul uh, uh, and a Jonathan, Jesus died to turn Philistines into the world or Philistines in the world, into little Christ, into Christians. 
So when Jesus overcame death by resurrection, he gave us a courageous life. He gave us a new purpose. He gave us a new mission. He gave us a new destiny. And we were given a new identity. We're no longer Saul. We're no longer a Philistine. We are armor bearers of the Savior. We're part of the mission with him. That's who we are now. That's what you do. You may not know the what, when, where, how questions. But in Christ, you know the why. You have the mission. You have the purpose. <sighs> For some of us, uh, your heart may be telling you that you've been a Saul and a Philistine. I've, I've been a Saul and a Philistine for, for a long time now. And the only way for you to be transformed from fear and enmity, enmity towards God is to, to repent. I use that word in the most gentle but the most firm ways possible. It's change the way that you think. Change the direction of your life. And courageously trust in Jesus who courageously climbed the mountain, risking his life for your salvation. You need to trust Jesus with that issue. You need to trust Jesus with that circumstance. You need to trust Jesus with your life. For others, other uh, sorry, for others of us who've been hiding in a cave, this year God will give you an assignment, and your temptation will be to respond like Saul, to make excuses, to throw a pity party, to talk about how difficult it is. But I want to challenge you to decide this morning that at the beginning now of 2017, before it, I've only lost eight days. You still have 357 days left. That right now, at the beginning of 2017, that no matter the challenge this year, you will not only give a Jonathan response, but you will give a Jesus response. We talk at Trinity Life that the way to be a disciple is to hear God's voice, trust Him, and move forward in obedience. And I pray that that will be our response this year. This will be my life passage, or my year passage for this year. You can adopt it as yours if you want. <clears throat> it comes from Proverbs 3, 5, 6. It says this, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. In all of your ways, acknowledge him. And it comes with a promise. And he will make your paths straight. And you can decide this now. You don't have to wait until it gets hard. You can decide that this morning. Jonathan's, <clears throat> Jonathan shows us something very important about grace. Biblical grace <clears throat> means receiving something that you didn't earn for yourself. So when we say that Jesus died for your sins to give you salvation, what it means is that God gave you something you didn't deserve. You didn't earn it. Jesus did the work for it. But it also means so much more than that. Jonathan knew that he couldn't overcome his enemy, his own strength. He came to this place of complete 100% surrender to God. 100%. And God saved him without any merit of his own. Grace says that God can save you without any works of your own, any merit of your own. But also, grace also says that you can do the mission that God has for you. You can do it because his power will do it through you. 
And that's the fuller understanding of grace, is that not only does grace save you, but grace is the power in which you're going to obey this year and everything that God's called you to do. You need God's grace to be courageous to move forward this year. And I really do believe that's the grace that God himself is inviting you to this morning right now. Let's pray together. If you want to know more about the TLC community, check out trinitylife.ca or you can find us on Facebook. Of course, we'd way rather meet you in person, so we hope to see you at a service soon. Thank you.